Let me ask you to uh, turn to Romans and chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, please. I want to read beginning with verse, <clears throat> excuse me, with verse 31. But as we come to the scripture, you'll find in your bulletin or just on the screens now, this prayer of illumination. And uh, so let us uh, pray it together. Our Father in heaven, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Enable us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Romans chapter eight, verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now that's the question, isn't it? That's the question. After we've worked our way through Romans 8, the first 30 verses, that's the question. What should we say to these things? Now what things? Well, I suppose we go all the way back to the beginning of Romans, but, but I don't think we need to because Paul so well summarizes all of this as we come into this eighth, eighth chapter. Remember, he said first that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what do we say to that? No condemnation. And then he says, not only that, not only are we freed from this condemnation, but we're also freed from the the power of sin. Uh, So that now, by the Spirit, we can live a life that's pleasing to God. We can live a life that's that's pleasing to him, that, that we can actually put to death by the Spirit the sinful deeds of the body. And, and, and we don't have to worry about being afraid that God will reject us in some way because he's adopted us into his family. And we know that he's adopted us into this family because we have his spirit within us. And we know that we have his spirit within us because when we get into difficult situations, not only here, but, but when we do get into difficult situations, we cry out to him, Abba, Father, in the most intimate of ways. So his spirit witnesses with our spirit that indeed uh, we're uh, children of God. And not only that, but, but we know our future is secure because we're heirs of Christ, heirs with Christ, of all that Christ has gained, if you will, for us by his life and death and resurrection and even now his intercession for us. And so we don't have to, to fear, but we can come before our Father with great 
boldness. But he does tell us that on our way to glory, there will be suffering. We know that, we've experienced it in our lives and we see it in others as well. But he he makes these promises to us. First this, that a day will come when we'll realize that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that we'll know. The glory that's to come. When, when, when we see that glory, everything else will pale in significance and we'll realize, no, 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 it was worth it that those sufferings weren't even worth comparing. They'll be gone from our minds. And not only that, he says, when we go through difficulties in life, even when we're at points when we don't know how to pray, still God is with us in such a way that his spirit actually intercedes for us according to the will of God. And not only that, but he tells us that God's at work and will work in such a way that everything in our lives will ultimately work for good. For those who love God, that is for those who find joy in pleasing him, and those who are called according to his purpose, because his purpose, that is the good to which he'll work in us, is to be conformed to the image of his son. And we know that will take place because this is God's work, because it begins with him. It says that he foreknew us and therefore then uh, predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. And he said, listen, there's no break in this. It begins with God, and it ends with God. It begins with God knowing us, and it ends with our our being with him in glory and him being glorified in us. And if we read this backwards, we know that all those who are glorified, you see, will have been uh, justified by God. And all those who have been justified by God will have been called by him in a way that works his life in us. Called and, And those who are called were called because they were on this destiny. They were predestined to be his sons and daughters, to be his children, to be adopted into his family. And all that because he foreknew us. What does that mean? God knows everything, of course. But this is a particular knowing of us. He knew us before. And the ones he knew before are the very same ones that end up being glorified. And so he knows those who are Glorified. Now, how does he know them? When it says that he foreknew, it means he knew before. That's not too difficult. He knew before. He knew before when? Before the foundations of the world. And he didn't just know us, believers, like he knows everybody else, because he knows everybody. But no, this is, this is a special knowing, because this knowing leads to glory. And not everybody ends up glorified. So it's, it's a knowing of those who be glorified. And it isn't just knowing about them or about us, if you will, or knowing something about us. It isn't that he knows who will believe and who won't. He knows that, but that's not the point here. To know here ahead of time is, in, is knowing, as we say, in a biblical way. To love. That he loved us before. He loved us not only before we loved him, but he loved us before everything. In fact, this is quite like what 
Paul lays out, and well, I don't even have to look at it. It's in our bulletins this morning. It's our profession of faith that we read this morning from Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, this predestinating love, in love. He, he loved us when he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's the same notion here. He loved us, chose us, predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. That's the same as saying he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Because you see, as his children, we now bear the family resemblance. We now bear the family resemblance of our elder brother Jesus. And so he's conforming us, you see, to the image of his son. And those on that destiny, those he loved before, and set on this destiny, had it planned out and laid out, he also called. Now when he says he called, it doesn't simply mean this general call of the gospel that goes out, that goes out. But he says that call worked. That call had an effect, it was effective to change your life. I don't know if you listened, I'm sure you did and prayed along with him, but when Ryan was praying this morning, he talked about giving life to dry bones. And that's what happened if you're a believer in Jesus. He gave life to you where there was death. And so he gives life, do you see? And Paul puts all this together in his letter when he, to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians in chapter one, we read this, verse two. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father of your work of faith and, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the point, verse four. For we know, brothers, loved by God. When did that love start? Before. It's for loved. Loved by God, that he has chosen you and how do we know that he's chosen you? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, when this call came, it came by the power of the Spirit and it convinced you completely that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus had died for your sins. Now you're weakened to that very fact. Christ is the hope of glory. And so those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified. Because by faith, you're justified, not by works. And so when you came to faith, because of this powerful call of the Holy Spirit, he declared you righteous. And all those he justified, he also glorified. And notice, Paul's so confident of this. It's such a done deal that he retains glory in the past tense, he also glorified. <laughs> so what do we say about that? What do we say to this, this great God who has saved us as he has? 
Uh, Paul lays this out in a series of questions. The first question is this. He says, if God is for us, <clears throat> who can be against us? Now, <coughs> excuse me. if he just had said, who can be against us, we could make a long list. There's much against us. In fact, Paul makes that list. He begins it in verse 35. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Now, Paul was familiar with all of these except for a sword, at least, as he writes about it, as he writes to the church in Corinth. But history, tradition tells us that he would come to meet this sword later. So all of these were familiar to him. He knew tribulation and distress. We know that too. We know all the pressures of life. We know the pressures of health and the lack of health at times. We, we know the pressure of disappointment and grief. We know what it's like to lose people whom we love. We know the pressure of relationships, how difficult they can be, how heartbreaking they can be. We know the pressures of that. We know the pressures of need, material need. Some live for long periods of time, perhaps their whole life, never seeming to have enough, never seeming to be able to make ends meet. We know this tribulation, we know distress. Some of us may know persecution firsthand. Others of us simply know it because we feel as if we don't fit in this world. We get out in it and we wonder and we think we're, we feel as if we're aliens in the world in which we inhabit these days. And we see persecution, we read about it, the course of history, we anticipate perhaps it will be true for us in a very direct way in the future. We don't know famine, nakedness, we, we know the devastation of nature, devastation that is brought with hurricanes and floods and tornadoes. And we know the devastation that comes from war, and political unrest, famine, nakedness. We know danger. We know all these things can be against us. And yet Paul doesn't simply ask it that way. He doesn't simply say, so what's against you? He says, if God is for us, <laughs> he puts it in context. If God is for us, well, we forget sometimes we're in the midst of that difficulty. If God is for us, and then really, better translated, if I could be so bold, who is against us? I can't be, but who is? And, and we just simply go, oh, I get it. Because you see, when Paul says, if God is for us, he means God. <laughs> and we could cite many passages here, but, but just going to uh, Isaiah in chapter 40, uh, these familiar words beginning in verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God. It's that God. It's the everlasting God, the eternal God, the God that always is and always will be, the God that has no beginning, God that has no end, the God that sees everything because he's above it all and in it all. He knows he is the eternal God. He can't be thwarted. He, he can't be done away with. He's, it's that God who is with us. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He's the one who made it all, everything, Everything is answerable to him. Everything is under his power and control. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He knows it all. He does not grow faint or weary. That is to say, 
Uh, he can never tire. He's, he's omnipotent. He's, he's full of strength. Uh, and to him, uh, he said, he does, not grow, he, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. That is, he knows everything. We can't get to the depths of what God knows, what God understands, because he's omniscient and he knows everything and he understands everything. But not only that, verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 29, he says, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait or hope Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He says, not only is is God everlasting, not only is he the creator of the ends of the earth, not only does he uh, know everything, not only does he have all power, but he shares with those who are his. And so he increases the power of the weak. We'll never fall exhausted in him. We'll run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. God says, if I'm for you, then who really can be against you? Remember when Moses was being called by God to go to Egypt and responded to God, who am I to stand up to Pharaoh? God just said, I'm with you. That's who you are. I'm with you. Remember the time that Elisha, the prophet, was in a situation and he was in a house and he looked out and enemies were all around him on every corner and, and his servant who was with him looked around too and, and had the presence of mind to say, we're in trouble. And Elisha said, no, we're not. And he goes, yeah, we are. And Elisha said, no, no, no. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And you can just... just see this servant melting, going, I I don't think so. And so Elisha said, God, open his eyes. And he realized, yes, the armies of God were with him. The ones with them were greater. And God says, if I'm for you, see, I'm for you. It's, it's, It's like that. The psalmist of Psalm 56 knew this well. The psalm begins as many psalms with the psalmist in trouble. And he says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. You just get the sense. If you ask this psalmist, if you ask David, who's against you? He would say, everybody and everything. Then verse three. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? If God is for me, then what could anything else do to me? All day long they injure my cause All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You've kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. 
could be translated, put my tears in your wineskins. Wonderful thing happens in wineskins. The wine gets better. Tears get better. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, and the Lord whose word I, word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Verse nine, God is for me. Verse 11, who could be against me? See, that's the sense of it here. That's the sense of it here. God indeed is for us. Who could be against us? See, this for us is a, is a covenantal for us. Remember, when God came to Abraham and became Abraham, he said to him, he said, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. In other words, he's saying, I'm your protector and I'm your provider. Abraham, don't worry. You don't need to be afraid. I'm with you, right? I'm with you. I'm this God, this very one. And then Paul goes on in verse 32. And he said, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now again, if Paul had just simply said, will God give you all things? You might say, well, I still have this list of things I haven't yet gotten. And some may be things you've prayed about and some perhaps things you haven't prayed about, but my suspicion is you have some things that you haven't gotten. But again, he prefaces all of that And he says, he who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, he says, before you look at your list, before you think of all the things you don't have, look at what I've already given to you. I've already given to you my son. And if I've already given to you, my son, if I've already given you this great gift, why do you think that I'm going to keep anything else from you? I mean, I've already given you Jesus. I've already given you my son. And I I mean, given him to you. Sacrificed him. I gave him. Why do you worry that I won't come through with everything else that you need? John Flavel, a 17th century Puritan pastor, theologian, put it like this. He says, how is it imaginable that God should withhold after this, that is after giving his son, how is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spirituals or temporals, that is anything you need in your spiritual life, anything you need in your physical material life? How is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spirituals or temporals from his people? How shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? In other words, this chain won't be broken. He's given his son, trust him. How shall he he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, deliver them? Surely, if he would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, It can never be imagined that he ever should, after this, deny or withhold from his people for whose sakes all this was suffered 
any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. Do you catch that? If he's given us Jesus, why would he not give us everything else that we need? J.I. Packer interprets it like this. He says, Paul is telling us that there is no ultimate loss or irreparable impoverishment to be feared. If God denies us something, it is only in order to make room for one or other of the things he has in mind. The meaning of, will give us all things can be put thus. One day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. He's saying everything that we need, we'll have. And nothing that we have, we don't need for our eternal happiness. You know, there's an expression that's used sometimes, I've used it, and it's okay, but it's not complete. So let me give you it in its incomplete form that we often hear it, that I've often said it, and then let me give it in the more complete form, which is the way we'll say it from now on. The incomplete form goes like this, that God is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. Now, when we say that, we're not utterly wrong. He is concerned about our holiness, so much so that he'll ordain suffering if it has the effect of causing us to be more conformed to the image of Jesus, to cause us to walk in holiness. But we mustn't think that God isn't ultimately concerned about our happiness, or perhaps if we want to be more biblical, joy. He is concerned. He desires for us to be the most joyful people on the face of the earth, and in particular, the happiest, most joyful people on the face of the new earth. And so he's so concerned about our happiness and our joy that he ordains suffering, gives us suffering in our lives, difficulties in our lives that conform us to the image of Jesus because he knows there's no ultimate happiness without holiness. Sin, unholiness, always leads to misery. It never leads to joy. And if we're talking about eternal happiness, then we can rest assured that God in his Roman, Romans 8.28-ishness, you know, with that for making up a word, with numbers, right? In, 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 the, in the sense of working all things together for good, in that sense, will deny us absolutely nothing for our good, nor will he bring, allow, ordain anything into our lives that isn't consistent with our good. John Newton, slave trader, remember ex-slave trader, um, became a Christian, wrote Amazing Grace and another, other amazing hymns, um, was writing a letter in 1759, August 9th, you don't need to know that, but was writing a letter to a friend of his, 
and his friend's sister was gravely ill. And he was trying to comfort him along these lines. And he said this. He said, everything that is needful, God will send. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything needful, he'll send. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. I remember one day, some time ago, I was visiting a man who was dying and his wife was uh, walking me out to my car. And she said to me, she said, I, I pray for his healing. But if he dies, then I know it will be best for me to be a widow. Because God won't withhold from me anything for my good. And that which he sends me, he intends for my good. Paul said, listen, this one who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then then if we're concerned about, about whether or not something can come into our lives, would cause God to cast us out, to condemn us. Verse 33 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding uh, for us. Now this, this whole point, who can bring any charge against us? And I don't know if you're about me, but I feel like there's charges against me all the time by my own conscience. I mean, Paul, we just walked our way through Romans 7 and, and his own conscience convicting him of his, of his own sin. And, and, and my conscience convicts me of, of my sin. And, and there's always this sneaky thought that comes in the back of my mind. And I know you too, because we talk about these things. What if? What if that's the big one? What if that's the one he can't forgive? What, how, how, do, how do I even call myself a Christian when I thought that, said that, did that? And it creeps into our minds, these accusations come, you see. And then they come from other people. People perhaps we've hurt, or people that say things about us. And How could you say you're a Christian? And yet again, Paul puts it in such a way. He says, you shall bring any charge against God's elect. <laughs> this is such a wonderful word, elect. Because it means that, no, no, no. Don't you remember that your salvation is a work of God? He started it. He's the one who chose you. As Jesus said, I chose you, you didn't choose me. He's the one who chose us before the foundations of the world. And so you see, he says, no, you're, you're mine. This is my work. I'll bring it to fruition, I promise. You can trust me. And then it, it, it's God's elect. He, he's the one who makes the determination. It's God who justifies and you see, there's, there's no court of appeals when it comes to God. When God makes a judgment, that's it. That's the highest court there can be. And when God says, you are justified, you are righteous in my sight, no one, nothing can change that. That's his decree. 
And he promises that we've been justified by faith, not our own works. And so we get that. So when these accusations come, we realize, no, I'm God's elect. He's chose me. He's working this out. It's his deal. And, and it's God who made the decree. It's God who made the declaration that I'm forgiven my sins, that I'm righteous in his sight. And then he trumps it all by saying, who is, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God. He says, he says so, so who's gonna condemn you? Well, let's say somebody does. Let's say your own conscience does. And let's say it, it makes it all the way to glory. Who's there to intercept it but Jesus? And he goes, wait, 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 wait a minute. I remember, I remember dying for this sin. I, I remember that. He's forgiven. That's what Hebrews chapter 7 tells us, verse 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, to defend them, to be our advocates in glory. So as long as Jesus is alive, we're safe. Nothing really can condemn us, no one. For Paul lays that out so clearly in chapter five, verse one. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We're standing even now in this grace and we're confident of the glory to come. Then finally this. So he says, at, at, at the end of it, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, he says it's, it's the very love you see, the very love of Christ that saves you, that keeps you. It's the, it's the love of Christ. And we wonder, well, can anything ever separate us from that? Did anything ever come that would cause me not to know that I'm loved by God and to walk away from him. Anything that would cause God to stop loving me. And he said, who, what even shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists these things out. We've talked about some already in verse 35, the tribulation, the distress, the uh, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, things that would come into a person's life if you didn't know them. You might think, well, well they're gonna walk away from God now because of these things. He says, no, 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 these things actually firm us up. Because what do we do in the midst of these things? We cry, Abba, Father. And his spirit witnesses to our spirit that we're children of God. And then he says, even this, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is, that we're Christians, believers being killed. But even still, that doesn't separate us from the love of God. Even, even in the midst of that, we know that God still loves us. And then he says in verse 37, no, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. That is, we can conquer these things because we're in him, verse 38. For I'm sure, he says, I am so confident. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nothing in life can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not even death itself. Because we know that when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with us. We don't need to be afraid nor angels, nor rulers, that is, nothing in the spiritual realm, 
nor things present right now, nor things to come. You might think, well, I've made it this far, but what about tomorrow? What about next year? What about 10 years from now? What about 30 years from now? What if, what if, what if? What if there's a war? What if I get cancer? What if, what if my death is a painful one? He says, no, 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 not even that. You can rest assured, you'll make it through. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And then you get the sense that Paul's running out of ink, so he says, not anything else in all creation. Uh, you know, I don't have time to list all of these other things, so absolutely, positively, nothing in creation can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we ask ourselves again, when did he love us and why? He loved us before. And why did he love us? Well, the answer to that, I think, is in in Deuteronomy in chapter 7. As Moses is speaking to the Israelites about the love of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7. Let me begin with verse 6. It says, for you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, you need to own that. Then verse seven. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Basically, what this passage says to them is that he loved them because he loved them. And you say, that's a bit circular. It is. It starts with God and ends back up with him. And it isn't that he simply loves us unconditionally. He loves us counter-conditionally. There was nothing in them to particularly love. It isn't the word lovable. It's that he loves us against all the things that are true. And if he loved us then, he'll still love us now. Because you see, this love isn't abstract. This love is real. It's It's so personal because he loves us in Christ. And we see the very love of God in Christ. And where do we see it? We see it the strongest in the cross. He who did not spare his own but gave himself up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He didn't spare his son. And it began with Jesus, particularly. We can see it in, in, in the scriptures throughout the, the gospels, but, but particularly it begins at Gethsemane when he, when he begins to cry out before the Lord. And, and Luke tells us that even as he sweat, there were drops of blood. It was that intense because at that moment, it, it really sunk in what was going to happen. And you can say lots of people die without fear. Well, Jesus didn't necessarily fear it, but, but he knew what was to come. He knew that he was about to face the wrath of God. And any human being would, would not want to do that. And so we see that 
even in Jesus, as he says, if, if this is possible, let this cup pass for me. But it wasn't possible because that's why he came. And so he says, not my will, but your will be, be done. But then he gets to the cross. And on the cross, all hell breaks out on Jesus. All hell breaks out on Jesus. And all he had to do was to, was to walk away. All he had to do was come down off the cross. All he had to do was leave that scene and all the pain and all the agony and all the death and, and all the forsake being forsaken by his father. And all of that would have, would have gone away. But to do that, you see, he would have had to break his promise to his father and he would have to leave us. Charles Spurgeon, 19th century Baptist minister, put it like this. He said, Jesus Christ was up on the cross, nailing, bleeding, dying, looking down on the people betraying him and forsaking him and denying him. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, he stayed. He stayed. And he stayed through that because he loved us, if he stayed through all hell breaking loose on him, if he stayed then, what makes us think he's gonna leave us now? I mean, what could be so bad now that he had stopped loving us when he loved us through that? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Do you remember when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says to them, he says, I've desired to know nothing about you except Christ and him crucified. Because he knew, if they knew Christ and him crucified, then they would know that nothing can separate them from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. May I say, that's all I've ever wanted to know about you and all I ever will. Let's pray. Father, it's boggling to our minds, it bursts in our hearts that you've loved us. While we were sinners, you loved us. You even loved us before. And you set us on a path, you laid out our destiny to be conformed to the image of your son adopted as your children. Then you graciously but powerfully called us. And that calling worked in us faith. And that faith brought us into your presence to be declared righteous in your sight, forgiven our sins, justified. And even now you're working in us by your spirit to Make us happy 
by working holiness in us. And we know that a day will come when we'll see Jesus and be like him, to be glorified. Continue, God, to work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight, which is that we would always live in the assurance that nothing can separate us from the love that you have for us as you've expressed it, manifested it, brought us home, brought it home in our hearts through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.